Hope in the morning. Hope in the evening. Hope because Christ is living. Hope because he is breathing. As I get this figured out, as if you wonder where there is hope, if you wonder, is there any place that I can really believe that there's hope? I don't feel it. I'm in this breaking. I'm in this sorrow. I'm in all these difficult things. Is there hope? Yes, there is hope. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And he has died and he has risen again. And we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that, that's what we're talking about today. That's what we're talking about in this series that we're walking through. If we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you guys are here. Uh, good to see some of you guys back today. Um, and I'm excited to continue our series today on the resurrected life because we're asking that question, is there actually hope? Is there actually real hope for our lives and real hope for our world? We're, we're coming out of Easter and we're asking the question, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make in my my life on a daily basis? How does what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and half a world away change my life in the here and now? Last week, right in, right in front of where I'm standing, we got to celebrate the grace of God through baptism. We got to see the gospel visualized right in front of us as Rebecca and Lucinda went down into the waters, symbolically showing their death with Jesus and came back up out of the water, symbolizing their resurrection with Jesus. And we saw this glorious picture of how the death and the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And then we went home and we continued struggling with the same temptations and maybe we got up Monday morning and went to the same frustrating dead-end job or suffered with the same health issues or dealt with the same family drama or endured the same soul-crushing sense of loneliness or anxiety or depression. And we got to ask, what does the resurrection mean for me in times like that? What does it mean when life is hard? Many of you guys know that the NFL draft was, was this past week. Uh, and so far, I have resisted the temptation to talk about my old glory days on the gridiron, um, mostly because they weren't very glorious. But, but I remember one time specifically, it was like one of the first times I got into a varsity football game. And I was on the punt team. And, and I go up to the line, and I get down in my stance, and the ball is snapped, and I hear our punter's foot hit the ball, and I just take off. Like, I am running down the field, I am absolutely flying, and there is nothing but grass between me and the punt returner. And so I start hearing the Sports Center theme in my head. Like, I'm thinking about how my highlight reel is going to look. I'm going to go down, I'm going to make the tackle, I'm going to be the hero, I'm going to get the Div 1 scholarship, I'm going to take the cheerleader to the dance, all these kind of visions of grandeur. And, and when I woke up, I was lying face down in the mud, heaving like a dying animal. Because the biggest, baddest guy from the other team had just, he just tracked me the whole way. And I was like in his targets. And he just comes from the other side of the field and he just blindsides me and lights me up and completely lays me out and actually spun all the way around and ended up with my face mask filled with mud. Now that's sometimes what the resurrected life feels like. We celebrate the hope of the gospel. We know the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of me. As we talked about last week, he saved us from the penalty of sin. He liberated us from the power of sin. And maybe we think, you know what? Everything's just going to start going my way now. But it doesn't. 
Life is still hard. As a matter of fact, often life gets more difficult when you become a follower of Jesus. So the resurrected life doesn't mean that life is perfect or that you never struggle. It means that you have a perfect Savior who is with you in the midst of the struggle. And that's what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 4 today. We're going to see how the resurrection of Jesus sustains and gives us confidence in the midst of the struggles of life. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 is where we're going to be today. Let's listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now here's, here's what's happening in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to people who were tempted to give up, who were tempted to lose hope, who were tempted to turn back to their old way of life. And the writer of Hebrews, we're not even sure exactly who it is, but, but they, they write to them to remind them of their hope to remind them of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them and how to keep hope in the midst of a situation that feels hopeless. And so that's what we're going to see today. Very simply, we're going to see what Jesus did, we're going to see what Jesus is doing, and we're going to see what Jesus calls us to do. First, what Jesus did. Look again at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He says, Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who has brought us into the very presence of God through his sacrificial death and resurrection. For all of human history, human beings have recognized that we can't just waltz glibly into the presence of God. We know we're broken. We know we're sinful. We know there's a gap between God and us. We know there is something transcendent out there, something more than we can see and hear and touch and taste and smell. And we hunger to connect with something deeper than the physical world. We long to connect with the divine. But we also know in the core of our being that we're alienated from it, that we're cut off from it. And so what we do is we try to find all kinds of ways to bridge that gap. Some of us might not even say that we believe in God, but we're still trying to find transcendence. We're still trying to find some sense of meaning. So we try all kinds of things. For some of us, that's morality. It's being a good person, either so that God will accept us or so that other people will accept us or maybe just so that we can accept ourselves. For some of us, it's spirituality. It's, it's meditation or, or prayer or some kind of ritual. For some of us, it actually gets really dark and really destructive. And we know that we're broken. We know that we're sinful. So what we do is we look for ways to punish ourselves because our self-destruction feels like it's making up for our sin and our brokenness. But the problem with all of these ways and all these approaches is that they all rely on our own effort. They all rely on us being good enough, being moral enough, being healthy enough, being generous enough, being religious enough. But when we encounter God as God really is, it all falls flat. And all of our religious games are exposed. Look up just a couple of verses in your Bible at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He says, For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, when, when we encounter God as God really is, when we really hear him speak his word, we're exposed. Like if, if God never messes with you, if God never contradicts you, if everything in your spirituality just affirms what you already think and already feel, then that's not God you're dealing with. That's just a projection of yourself. God's word tests us. Sometimes it says it cuts us. It wounds us so that it can heal us. And God's word doesn't just test our actions. It tests our thoughts. It tests our motives. It tests my thoughts. It tests my motives. Like, why am I standing here preaching this sermon? Is it because I need a paycheck and I don't really have any marketable skills? Is it because I'm, I'm insecure and it makes me feel important to stand up here and ramble for a half hour while you sit there and listen to me? Or is it because I desperately want to see the kingdom of God come in Chautauqua County as it is in heaven? Or like most things, is it kind of a mixed bag? See, God's word doesn't just test my actions. It tests, it forces me to be honest about my motives. God doesn't just see what I do. He sees why I do it. So, so let me ask you, when was the last time that happened to you? When was the last time you felt naked and exposed as you were reading the Bible? When was the last time you felt naked and exposed as, as you were listening to a sermon? If that happens to you, that's a good thing. That's what God's word is designed to do. And that's why we need verse 14. That's why we need that great high priest. See, verses 12 and 13 remind us that we can't hide from God. Verses 14 through 16 remind us that we don't have to. See, throughout most of human history, people have tried to bridge the gap through religion. And one of the common elements of a religion is that you, you have a priest. You have someone who stands between you and God, who represents God to you and who represents you to God. They bridge the gap. They try to reconcile sinful people to a holy God. That's what the priests did in the Old Testament. They would atone for the sins of the people. They would bring these sacrifices to God so that God would forgive the sins of the people. But the problem, of course, is that the high priest was also a broken sinner. And the blood of bulls and goats could never pay for the sins of human beings that they have committed against a holy God. And so these sinful human beings could never bring us into the presence of God. But the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14, he says, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the one who passed through the heavens. Everything in the rhythms and rituals of Old Testament worship pointed to the fact that human beings were separated from God and that we needed someone to reconcile us to God. There was actually a, a heavy curtain in the temple that, that, that separated the holy place, which is where the priests were, from the most holy place, which represented the presence of God. And the gospel writer, writers tell us that when Jesus died, the curtain was torn from top to bottom because Jesus is our perfect high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice, who can now go directly into the presence of God and who can actually bring us directly into the presence of God. That's why the writer says here, he passed through the heavens. He has risen from the dead. He has entered the presence of God the Father. He has torn down the wall that divided heaven and earth, and he has ripped open the curtain that kept us out of God's presence. And we don't need anything. 
or anyone else to make us right with God. Jesus is enough. Listen, you can stop trying to prove yourself. Jesus is enough. You can stop trying to punish yourself. Jesus is enough. You can stop trying to perform for God and earn his acceptance. Jesus is enough. You can stop playing religious games with God. You can be honest about your sin. And and not just the bad things you do. You can be honest about the good things you do with bad motives. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He has entered into the presence of God. And if you trust in him, he brings you into the presence of God as well. That's what Jesus did for us. He died and rose again. He passed through the heavens as our perfect high priest to make us right with God. But have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing now? Like, what's a a day in the life of Jesus look like right now? Like, he's been up there for 2,000 years. Is he bored? Is he he killing time playing video games and scrolling Twitter and trying to find something to do? What's Jesus doing right now? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's interceding for you. He is advocating for you. He is praying for you. When you are afraid, Jesus is praying for you. When you feel weak, Jesus is praying for you. When you fail and you fall and you sin and you mess up over and over and over again, Jesus is praying for you. There is no dark corner of your life that he doesn't know about. But there is no dark corner of your life where he doesn't love you. There is no dark sin that he won't forgive. And there is no dark sin that he will not eventually set you free from. He saves us to the uttermost. How would that change our lives? How would it change our lives if we realized right now Jesus is praying for me? How would that set us free from fear? Robert Murray McShane said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. How would it set us free from fear if we really believe that? How would this set us free from guilt and shame and condemnation? To know that when your sin accuses you, when your conscience accuses you, when the devil of hell himself accuses you, you don't have to run from God. You don't have to hide from God. You can run to him because Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is pleading your case and standing in your defense. How would this set us free from self-righteousness and arrogance to know I'm not better than anyone else. The only reason I'm accepted before God is because of what Jesus has done for me and the fact that right now Jesus is praying for me. How would this bolster us as we fight temptation to know that Jesus is praying for us as we fight? How would this enable us to endure when we don't think we can take another step to know that Jesus is praying for us right now? How would this set us free from our need to prove ourselves? How would it set us free to admit when we're wrong? How would it set us free to be patient with other people in their temptations? 
and their trials and their weaknesses? How would it change us in the core of our being to get this reality in our hearts and our minds that Jesus is praying for you and me right now? And how does Jesus feel about that? Like, what does he think about that? What does he feel about me? As, is he just like, I got to pray for this loser again? Now he's, is he disgusted with me? Is he tired? Is he annoyed with me? If I'm honest, like, that's how I think God feels about me sometimes. That's how I feel about myself sometimes. That's not what the Bible says. Look at Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It says he sympathizes with you. He sympathizes with me. I, I get so disgusted with myself and so tired of myself and so disappointed in myself, but Jesus never gets tired or disgusted or disappointed in me. He sympathizes with us. Now, the word sympathize here doesn't just mean that Jesus feels sorry for us. It's actually a compound word that literally means to suffer with. Jesus suffers with us in our weakness. Jesus knows what it's like to be tested. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He, the scriptures say he was tempted in every way as we are. He doesn't just know about our temptation. He knows it. He experienced it. He knows what it is to be poor, to be lonely, to be abandoned, to be betrayed by his closest friends. He knows what it's like to be overlooked, to be forgotten, to, to live with unfulfilled desires, to, to lose a loved one. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows your weakness. He knows your struggle. And he suffers with you in the midst of it. Tempted in every way like we are, verse 15 says, yet without sin. Now, you might hear that and you might think, well, then how can Jesus really love me? How can he really sympathize with me if he never sinned? How can he really know what this is like? But I would submit to you that Jesus' sinlessness actually means that he knows more about temptation and weakness than we do. Because he didn't give in. He fought it to the bitter end. And he won. C.S. Lewis captures this so well. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He knows our weakness. He knows our temptation. He feels it with us. And because he overcame them, he is, he is able to enable us to overcome them as well. He knows exactly what we need to fight temptation because he fought temptation and defeated it. And even when we fail, 
Even when we give in to temptation, it says that he is praying for us. He is interceding for us. He is advocating for us as our great high priest. So how do we live in light of that? How do we respond to what Jesus has done and is doing for us? What does Jesus call us to do in response? Look again at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, hold on to the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he is doing for you. Hold on to your hope. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. In a world filled with bad news, we need to remind ourselves of the good news. This is why we've got to be people of the word. This is why we're memorizing and meditating on our key verse each week, because this is how we endure. This is how Jesus keeps our hope alive. We hold on to the truth. And verse 16 says, we draw near with confidence. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, draw near. Christianity is not just a set of doctrines we believe. It's a relationship with the God of the universe. Jesus didn't just die and rise again to make you a better person. He died and rose again to bring you to God. And we don't come to some concept or some idea. We come to a person. God who spoke the universe into existence who spins the planets on their axes and upholds the law of nature, the, guy, the, the God who dwells in light inaccessible, the God before whom the seraphim cry out day and night, holy, 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 that God invites you into his presence. That God invites you to draw near to him. And how do we draw near? How do we come into his presence? He says, let us draw near with confidence, with boldness. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we treat him casually. It doesn't mean that we, that we come before him arrogantly. That doesn't mean that Jesus is your homeboy, regardless of what the t-shirt says. We, we never forget his holiness. We never forget and we never hide our sinfulness. And yet at the same time, we come to him boldly and confidently because our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in Jesus, who died and rose again and even now is leading us into the presence of God. That reality infuses your life with humble confidence that nothing in heaven or hell can shake. So we draw near to him. We come to him. Be honest about your sins. Be honest about your temptations. Be honest about your weaknesses. Listen, he's not surprised by it. He knows what it is to be weak. He knows what it is to be tempted. He died and rose again to bring us home. So come to him. You're not going to find guilt. You're not going to find shame. You're not going to find condemnation or disappointment or frustration. The writer says, you will find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. And he invites you to come to him boldly, with, without fear of condemnation or shame, to come boldly to the very throne of God. You know, one of the ways we hold fast the confession 
One of the ways we, we preach the gospel to ourselves is by taking the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said that this meal that we're about to take is a way that we proclaim his death until he comes. In other words, this meal preaches to us. It reminds us that his body was broken for us. It reminds us that his blood was shed for us and so that we can come near to him. See, God doesn't just forgive us and then, and then keep us at arm's length. He brings us into his family. He invites us to come to him and to eat around the dinner table. And so that's what we're going to do with this bread and this cup. We're reminding ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ, and we're drawing near to him. We're coming home for the family dinner. So, so if you're trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus to bring you to God, then Jesus invites you to eat and drink as part of his family. We have these, these cups with these wafers. If you don't have one, we've got some at the, at the back connect table right back there. Um, but the way that we'll do this is just simply tear off that top layer of cellophane and uh, take out that wafer there. The scriptures tell us that, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, was eating with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat and remember Christ. In the same way also, after they had eaten, Jesus took the cup and he had said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Pour it out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood with, with which you are going to be sprinkled and cleansed, and you will be brought into the very presence of God through this. So this is my blood which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember Christ. Father, it is an amazing fact a mind-blowing reality to think that we can come into your presence and, and not come into your presence to be condemned, but to be accepted, to be welcomed home, to, to sit with you at the dinner table. We don't pretend that we deserve that. We don't pretend that we have earned that. God, we are, we are sinners in need of your grace. But we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Christ. Thank you for his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Thank you that for those in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Thank you that we don't have to run from you and we don't have to hide and we don't have to posture and pretend and play religious games because Jesus is enough. And thank you, not only for what Christ did, but thank you, Jesus, for what you are doing right now. Praying for us, interceding for us, advocating for us. God, I don't know where everybody is in this room. I don't know all the things that might be weighing on people's hearts, the, the struggles, the trials, the disappointments, the weaknesses, the temptations, the, the guilt or the shame that might be weighing us down. Jesus, would you pray for us now? You know exactly what we need. We thank you that, that even if we don't even know what we need, you know what we need. 
You sympathize with us in our weakness. You suffered with us and you suffered for us, died and rose again to give us a hope that nothing in this world can take away. So bolster us with that hope now as we worship you. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, key verse this week. Key verse is that verse that we looked at, Hebrews 4, 16. Um, and, and take this with you and, and just live this out this week. Even in the midst of your struggle or your weakness, do this this week. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to send you guys out with a benediction. Benediction is just a, a word of blessing. Let's stand uh, and receive this benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Peace be with you. Have a great week.